0: Have you ever thought about selling your business, getting your business ready for a leadership transition? Today, we're going to talk with an investment banker. Her name is Debbie Douglas, and she has been at the business of selling businesses for 27 years. So pay attention and listen up if it's in your future to think about selling your business. All this and more on today's episode of Let's Make Work Optional.
1: Welcome to this episode of Let's Make Work Optional with True Wealth & Company in Overland Park, Kansas. True Wealth & Company incorporates strategies and products of the super-rich to help you reach your financial goals and make work optional. And now, here's Brian Sarf, President and CEO of True Wealth & Company.
0: Good morning, welcome to Let's Make Work Optional. I'm Brian Sarf, and with me today is the CEO of The Douglas Group, Deborah Douglas. Welcome, Deborah. How are you this morning? Fine. Great to have you here and looking forward to sharing your thoughts and ideas and everything you've learned over your fantastic career of all the businesses that you've helped sell to the marketplace. Okay. And tell us a little bit about the Douglas Group and how you got to be in investment banking.
2: Douglas Group has been around now for 27 years, so for quite a while. Before that, I was a partner with one of the then-big-eight CPA firms. That'll date me. <laughs> and we began selling companies back 27 years ago. We've sold 130 companies during that time, so quite a few wow, Yes. over time. And it's been a very exciting and very rewarding path. And There are not a lot of companies who focus entirely on the sale mm-hmm. of companies, so we're a fairly narrow market, and that helps.
0: Well, you have a lot of firms who will sell and buy anything right. in the marketplace, and you've really carved out a niche. Talk about your niche. You're on just the sell side. Is that correct?
2: Just the sell side. Okay. And we don't do real tiny companies. We we kind of need a company to be maybe, most of them are at least 10 million in sales. Mm-hmm. Some are smaller, but 10 million up to maybe 200 million. Mm-hmm. We see an awful lot in that 30 to 60 million dollar range. It seems like. That's kind of our our niche. And we started doing more manufacturers than anything else. So we have an awful lot of experience in that venue. But over the past five years in particular, we've done more and more service things, a wider range. We do a lot of healthcare companies now. Those are almost all service-oriented. A few Mm -hmm. of them are manufacturing. They make some little widget for radiology or something like that. Yes. But we've expanded to a, a broader range of things in recent years.
0: What's been the most rewarding for you as you've worked to sell all of these businesses in the marketplace.
2: I'd say the most rewarding is that it satisfies an owner's kind of end game mm-hmm. as it goes through the process. It's mm-hmm. very, very big deal to the owner seller. Half of our clients are probably young enough that they might do it again. And half of them are kind of taking the culmination of their life's work for the one time, final, grandiose exit. <laughs> so it's a big deal to them.
0: Anyway. I know. <laughs> surprising to me was the age range of your clients that I think a lot of folks assume that if you're going to sell your business, you're at the end of your career, and you're selling it to your family, to your employees, or maybe to a uh, private equity group. It's surprising that half of your clients are, are not in that, that group. That's yeah. right. Yeah. they in what, the what 40s. Meetings. Yeah. So do they sell multiple businesses?
2: They do over time, and we've sold multiple businesses for some owners in that 20 years, So, so that's been kind of fun. But I think the biggest difference is they don't have quite the torment and consternation about what happens to me after I sell my business. Mm -hmm. They say, you know what? I could do great if I sold this business right now, (laughs) and I could live on my $30 million or whatever it is for life and be happy. So they're a little bit quicker to make a move sometimes (laughs) than the 65-year-old.
0: What have your clients shared with you that's most rewarding for them of going through the process of selling their business with you?
2: I hate to be so simplistic, but cash. (laughs) (laughs) That's the end game Mm -hmm. target, really, for most of the sellers. And they really want the independence to be financially free to do whatever they want for the rest of their lives and not quite tied to that, you know, sometimes 50, 60-hour work week. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) At what point do they typically begin working with you prior to the sale? How many months or years in advance do they call you to get ready.
2: Most of them start working with us a month ahead of sale. It's really not long. It should be longer, Mm -hmm. frankly. There are a lot of people that could benefit tremendously by knowing what to do in their company, how to prepare it for sale, how to make it valuable for the future.
0: We're sitting here talking to business owners that are maybe thinking of selling their business in a few years. What are some tips that you could recommend to them of things they can work on to get their business in a better state for sale to get more value out of it? Okay. And more cash, as you say.
2: Right. Well, and one of the probably most obvious things, actually, is people development. Owners so often have a very dominant role in the management of their company. And the second-tier people that are coming along aren't very far along. Mm. So it really helps to have some of those people in a position where they can begin to grow early on before you make the move. Mm-hmm. Also, focus on markets, what your particular business market is doing. It's always very helpful as you contemplate sale to have at least a head start in climbing into the changes in the markets and the new things in your market Mm -hmm. so that your company really has a little bit of a lead position in doing some of the new things that will come into the future. You don't want to be manufacturing the old product that is going to be completely gone in five years. That's not good for value.
0: (laughs) I spent the entire day yesterday with Go Brand Go, uh, Brandon Dempsey, and you and I had dinner with him a couple of nights ago. And that's his focus of his company, is helping manufacturers and distributors build better relational value with their customers, and to not have the salesperson or the owner as the centerpiece, but to have the company as the centerpiece to build that relation, and that will get you multiple value when you're going to sell that if you want to get out as an owner and you come in debbie and your company helps them sell their corporation if they're the centerpiece of everything they're going to have to stick around as a consultant for a while and it's hard for them to unplug and go away
2: that's Um, right and and they hurt value because even if they'll stay as a consultant a buyer won't have complete confidence that that owner is really bought in and mm-hmm. still very intensely dedicated <laughs> after he has purchased the business.
0: I know that that happens a lot in a lot of businesses that are sold in that uh, you know two million to ten million dollar range, or two million to twenty million, where the owner sticks around for a while. Does that happen much with the businesses that you sell? Do the owners typically stick around, or are they pretty much?
2: Most of them? our owners are gone within a year. Mm-hmm. And we will tr- tell them that we'll get them a, a commitment that they can be out within a year if they want to. Now, occasionally, we have guys who really kind of like working with more people, a bigger group of management to supplement them and stay. We sold a company in Florida a few years ago, Seaway Engineering, plastics company, great company. And I talked to the owner just recently. He sold the company, it's got to be four or five years ago, and he's still working there. And he said, it's the best thing that ever happened to me. These guys leave me alone to do everything I know how to do well. Wow. And whenever I can't do it well, they fix it. <laughs> <laughs> but so he's, he's really happy. I mean,
0: he's very happy. Yeah. I mean, that's a win-win for everybody. Right. I remember uh, Michael Gerber's book that he wrote about the e-myth. Right. That as an entrepreneur, you start off wearing three hats as the manager, as the leader and the visionary, and then the technician. Right, And at some point in your business, you have to pick one of those that you're passionate to run with and delegate the other two. And any entrepreneur that tries to hold on to all three forever will limit the growth of their company.
2: That's true. And even if they're contemplating sale, they probably should be transferring all, all three mm-hmm. <laughs> before yes. sale.
0: Well, to make sure they have people in place, yes, because right. that will drive value and then give more confidence to the group coming in, that everything will continue, that clients are going to bail ship and go somewhere else. Right. What are the companies that you're most working with today in the marketplace or companies that you would like to work with in any particular industry or sector?
2: You know we have a very nice aerospace company closing today. Actually, oh Literally wonderful! Today. We don't have to be there. We we just collect the money. <laughs> <laughs> so that's good. We have several healthcare clients. I mentioned that we're into more and more of that. We've done a lot of manufacturing over the years. We probably sold 40 plastics manufacturers, injection molders, mm-hmm. and thermoformers, and every kind of plastics manufacturer you can imagine. Mm-hmm. We've sold service companies, unemployment service compensation company that we sold some years ago. It was a really kind of small company. It was about $30 million, making 5% on $30 million. Wow. But it was the key unemployment service provider for some of the big companies. And we sold that company for $75 million. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it made no sense at all. It wow. was wonderful. I thought the talks bought it. I thought they were probably really kind of wild in, in what they were willing to pay. They sold that company maybe three years later, for 200 million dollars. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so I guess they weren't so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> they knew their market. That's they knew right. their marketplace. Yeah. That's right. And they commanded it. That's so it kind of neat. But we've sold a pretty wide range of things over time.
0: Mm-hmm. I'd like to transition to what are some of the fears that business owners have as they approach the sale of their business that are occupying their headspace that are questions or thoughts or feelings they have to get around to committing to signing to sell their business?
2: You know, one of the fears that Owners have, and invariably, if they do this on their own, they'll get a lot of offers with a lot of take-back money where somebody gives them notes or somebody gives them some kind of future payment arrangement, and they're afraid of that. Hmm. Frankly, they should be. It is very, very hard to depend upon that new buyer running your company as well as you did for the future to pay off your note. We typically don't have a seller take more than 10% in a note. mm mm-hmm. So we want ninety percent cash. Absolutely, we want to see it, it's safe. And if you can't, you better look for another buyer. If you have all offers that are half cash, something's wrong. Mm-hmm. It's not going right.
0: How do you find the buyers for the business owners you work with?
2: You know, we do a really exhaustive research process. People assume that we know all of the buyers and have all of the buyers. Well, we do know a lot of buyers. We have thousands of buyers in our database. Mm-hmm. But every single deal, we look completely anew to see who would be the ones that would most benefit from our client's product or service going forward. And we do a lot of research on those companies. We will typically investigate maybe two or 300 companies for one seller client. That's amazing. Now, we don't tell them all about our seller, mm-hmm. but we do investigate. We do talk to them. We talk about what they want to buy, what's perfect, what do they try to avoid. We go through that process of a long conversation with each one of those. Mm-hmm. And we will boil it down to maybe, oh, on the average, probably 20 or 30 that we think our our seller should talk to.
0: And then do all 20 or 30 of those meet with the selling company?
2: They all want to. They all ask to immediately, right away. We will have all of those buyers who are really demanding contact with our client. We'll arrange for a conference call, long distance (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) conference call, so that they can hear what's going on and get to know our seller a little bit and see if they feel comfortable. And then when we have it a little further along, probably two or three months into the deal, we will ask for a letter of interest with the price, with the terms, the key elements of the terms. We will get those letters of interest. We might get 10 or 15 for one client, and we might choose two to invite to visit the client, Mm -hmm. maybe three.
0: How do you coordinate that visit so that it's quiet and private and confidential for the employees and everybody else involved? Oh, it is tricky. Yeah, it's very
2: hard. Typically, we will uh, talk to them as if they're a prospective customer or something like that. Identify what kind of role they're to play when Mm -hmm. they come to the business. They will ask for our client. Our client will tour them through the business, not talking to people a lot, you know, very casually, and then go off-site to really have the detailed discussions. So. Maybe spend two hours then in a restaurant or other place.
0: Sure. I, I would imagine, I mean, privacy and confidentiality has to be top of the list. for. It is.
2: It should be. Should be how
0: do they protect themselves so that the word doesn't get out that they're looking to sell their company?
2: You know, it's very difficult to protect it, absolutely. We've had really good luck with it, and we have a buyer sign a non disclosure with no name before he knows the name of the company, before he knows very much at all. So, we have a written non disclosure that's legally enforceable, but it's still tricky to do. Usually, uh, an owner needs, for example, his controller or his CFO to know things. Well, they better have a conversation about confidentiality <laughs> that, that is quite clear <laughs> that it's to be a very secret undertaking as they go through it. So, it, it is kind of hard to protect, but buyers don't want the world to know you're for sale, they want to be the only ones who know it. So they'll usually honor those non-disclosures fairly carefully. We've had really good luck with it.
0: I heard a story of a business owner in Kansas City that was putting their business up for sale and had talked with somebody else who was in the same industry as them, thought they would be able to acquire them and buy their company, so shared it with them, didn't have them sign a non-disclosure. The interested buyer saw the terms they had on their banking deal. They both were with the same bank and didn't know it, and the prospective buyer called the banker and said, why didn't I get the same terms? So now the banker's oh, upset <laughs> that the confidentiality is broken in that part of it. And the prospective buyer was only kicking the tires to see how this other company had done so well in certain markets that they hadn't been able to penetrate. Oh, yeah. And was just kicking the tires to see if they could duplicate. But no non-disclosure, no confidentiality. And the whole thing blew up in front of them. And they kind of had to reset, regroup. Get the you know the culture back in the office as, as much, and then a few years later, they eventually did sell.
2: That's tricky, and sometimes causes a, a significant delay in timing. Mm-hmm. So it can be very bad. At so.
0: well, the uproar, when you puncture the culture of your company, that's really hard to recreate. It's hard to rebuild. And then they always have the question, when will they sell now for that company? So should I start looking for a job somewhere else?
2: Yeah, it happens. And people do bolt sometimes when they're nervous about a company. So once the buyer
0: commits, so when you have those two or three that come in to visit and they decide that, you know, you find that two of them are going to compete to buy this company, how do you make sure that... The top people in that company, the key employees, stick around after the sale.
2: It's very hard to protect that. We try to keep it generally very, very quiet until closing day. Mm -hmm. And we talk to the buyer pretty extensively about what it's going to take to keep them because usually the buyer wants those good people very Mm -hmm. badly. So we kind of make sure they know what's going to be important to retaining those people so that they can act effectively.
0: Immediately after the sale, then get those key employees in front of the new buyer and talk about – packages offer long-term, sure. what their vision is.
2: That's right. Most buyers expect to start the program with kind of a very similar set of benefits and salaries, hmm. but many of them really hope to nudge it up kind of nicely for the top players within a few months' time.
0: Do business owners have to have their business perfect to have all of their, what they consider their dirty laundry or, or their skeletons in the closet cleaned up and taken care of, then have all of that tidied up before they go to market to sell?
2: Absolutely not. They certainly don't. One of the things that sellers can do very well with this is being very straightforward and open with buyers when they come. We have a company that we sold a few years ago that had absolutely no sales team, none. They had great products, and their sales were growing, so they were doing well anyway. But as the buyers would ask about, okay, now, how does your sales process work and who's involved? (laughs) The owner said, me. (laughs) (laughs) But he was also very forthright about it, very straightforward. He said, we have no sales team. We really should have. We could be a lot bigger and a lot stronger if we did. And I just haven't had the energy or the knowledge to build it yet.
0: So then you'll look for a buyer that that's a strength for them.
2: Right. It's right. something
0: that they enjoy adding as a value add when they're coming in to 10x that company or 4x that company. Sure.
2: And a lot of buyers growth. actually really like that. It's a big plus. Hmm. If he's doing this well now with no sales staffing, my gosh.
0: What would he do with a? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What happens with a full sales team in place?
2: Right. Exactly. That's so it incredible. Could be
0: incredible. How do you go through the business valuation process with a business owner so they know what's their business worth, what's the value of it, and how do you price it to the marketplace?
2: We don't price it to the marketplace. We make the marketplace price. Okay which is absolutely critical to getting top pricing. I can tell you that I have gotten pricing far higher than I would have ever dared to speak to (laughs) in many, many cases. Mm -hmm. So creation of a good competitive process where the buyer sets price is critical. However, before we take on a client, we will tell them kind of what to expect. Mm -hmm. We know generally pricing in your product market range is like this and very often it's a multiple of EBITDA earnings before interest depreciation and that's very common and you know those multiples for companies in our size mix might be five to six on the average okay it might be four to six or five to seven mm-hmm. now we're doing right now in one of the medical companies we have it's a very nice niche and the normal multiples people are paying in that particular segment are six to eight. Oh my goodness that's a big number.
0: That's a huge number.
2: Yeah, it's kind of neat. Mm-hmm. Now, you don't always know. You, it, just because it's a normal multiple doesn't mean it's guaranteed. But it does give you kind of a good framework. And we want an owner to expect something that's reasonable. If he thinks, gosh, i got to get 10 times earnings, and we think, <laughs> he's probably going to get five, <laughs> we should be forthright with him before we take it on.
0: So how do the buyers set the price? What do you send out to them to provide to the buyers so they can set the price for that business?
2: We give them information on the company's financials. They see what performance has been. In some cases, if it's a company that has low sales for what is possible, we'll also give them information about the market size and penetration possible in the future so that they Mm -hmm. can see, hey, there's tremendous growth potential Mm -hmm. in that company. Mm -hmm. We give them information on people. We give them information on physical facilities, the plants, if it's a manufacturing organization, what all of that kind of thing, so that they really have a sense of, we're going to have to come in and spend $5 million tomorrow <laughs> or, <laughs> or not. you know. So it's important that they understand kind of what they're buying. And those things enable the buyer to make a set of price. It's not a mystery to the buyer, typically. They have their own mechanism for establishing price that they kind of live by internally.
0: What's your marketplace? What geographic region do you serve with the Douglas Street? Um
2: US and Canada probably okay. for the most part. We've done six deals in Canada.
1: we mm-hmm.
2: We've done the other 120 or whatever it is in in the US. We've oh. done a few other places. We did one in China. Mm-hmm. We won't do that again. <laughs> <laughs> it's far. H- how much of a difference
0: is it in the selling process in Canada versus the United States?
2: <laughs> Virtually none. It's really Pretty very much the same, okay. yeah. yeah. We've had a couple of clients that we've kind of have approached us from Mexico and we've never done one there, but It's a tricky area because there are different kind of mores and how they produce financial information and what they say. So we haven't done that yet.
0: You know, I'm I'm looking uh, at some of our notes from our pre-discussion here. You know, when I look at a business owner that's getting ready to sell. Who should they involve in the process? And how do they choose the right people to be in the room with you and with the possible buyers that are looking at the company?
2: Typically, we don't have anyone in the room other than our clients, the business owner, Often his controller or top financial person okay. might be mm-hmm. a participant. Attorneys, we don't have in at that stage. They're costly, and it's too early for them, frankly. Mm-hmm. We don't need that. So usually it's a pretty small crowd. Well,
0: smaller <laughs> crowd keeps the noise and the chatter down. Right, and, and helps whispers. you
2: control the process a bit better. Mm-hmm. And control of the process is critical. I mean, I know we have achieved many times more than what some others have come to some of our clients with, and that's probably because we create a very strong process.
0: If someone wants to reach out to you, what's your website and phone number to get in touch with you?
2: The website is douglasgroup.net. Our phone number at the office is 314-991-5150.
0: Any closing thoughts that you have that you want to share with business owners out there that are thinking of selling their business in the next five years or so?
2: I guess I would offer for business owners to, as they begin to think about it, Make that first call a little bit earlier. We have a lot of owners that come to us when they're ready tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) And you can do a lot of good things for your organization if you plan a little bit further ahead and begin to think about what the purchaser perspective is going to be on your company. So I I guess I would just encourage people to think about talking to somebody a little earlier and getting a few of the heads-ups earlier.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's been a pleasure visiting with you. Thank you for sharing your morning with me. I really enjoy the advice that you give for the manufacturers and business owners and service companies that are looking to sell their business in the next few years.
2: Great. Thank you. You're welcome.
0: <laughs> Thanks for listening to Let's Make Work Optional from True Wealth and Company. I'm your host, Brian Sarf. With me this week has been the one and only Deborah Douglas. We'll be back next Tuesday morning at 5 a.m., be sure to spread the word about this podcast to your friends and family, and don't keep us a secret. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, connect with us on LinkedIn, and don't ever forget, invest wisely, save early, give generously. Let's make work optional.
1: You've been listening to Let's Make Work Optional from True Wealth and Company. Visit us online at retirewithtrue.com or call 913-653-TRUE. That's 913 913-653- 653 All matters discussed during this program are for informational purposes only. This podcast in no way shall be construed as a solicitation to sell securities or advisory services to residents in any other state than Kansas or where otherwise prohibited. Topics should be discussed with your advisor prior to implementation. Advisory and insurance services offered through True Wealth & Company, LLC, a registered investment advisor in the state of Kansas.